Thanks, Pan. Good morning, and uh, welcome again to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. If uh, this is your home church, welcome. It's great to have you here. If you're a guest, thanks for joining us. It's uh, wonderful to have you here on, th- on Thanksgiving weekend, as uh, many of us uh, probably spent time with family or had some type of Thanksgiving meal and actually thought about what we're thankful for. I just want to let you know, pastors, the eight of us, the staff here at Hiawatha Church, we truly are thankful for you. As we remembered the good gifts in our life, the things that God has done, the people he's put in our life, you are at the very top of our list. So just know on, on behalf of leadership, we deeply love each and every one of you. We're thankful for you. We're grateful you're a part of this church family. So happy Thanksgiving. All right, before we get to our passage this morning, though, I did want to introduce to you favorite professional wrestler. And right now, some of you are super excited. Some of you cannot believe what I'm about to say. Uh, And this is my favorite wrestler right here, The Rock. Actually, he's not my favorite wrestler. He's my second favorite. Goldberg would be my favorite, but he doesn't work for my illustration. So we're going to go with The Rock. Uh, Actually, one of our senior members here at our church came up to me after the service. She goes, I know who The Rock is. I didn't know he was a wrestler. I knew he was a movie star, but I didn't know he was a wrestler. So let me tell you a bit about The Rock. He was and is just unbelievably popular, uh, first as a professional wrestler in the WWE, but now he's just become insanely popular through TV and talk shows and show about himself and podcasts and movies. And he's helped one of the best movie franchises in history to move from awesome to action movie perfection. And of course, I mean the Fast and the Furious movie franchise. Where's Tyler? Where's my man? No? He's teaching. He, he would love that. Anyway, but back to The Rock. The Rock was unbelievably popular, and his, his nickname as a wrestler was he was the people's champ, people's champion. And the reason he was, he actually started off as a bad guy, but the reason he became the people's champion was because he was tall, he was strong, he was good-looking, he was charismatic, and he just flat-out was one of the best. He was better, better than everyone else. So even though it maybe wasn't written into the story, The Rock became the people's champ because in people's eyes, he was what everyone wanted in their champion. And even though this was very true for, for young boys and young men for about a decade uh, in the WWE, it, it's not just uh, American boys and men that see something like this and think, yeah, that's a champion. In fact, it's, I think, and I'm going to argue, a, a part of human nature to see someone strong, successful, tall, good-looking, charismatic, and to think, ooh, that's the one I want to follow. That's the winner. That's the champion. We're actually see this exact same thing play out in our story today, which happened thousands and thousands of years ago. Right now, we're in a sermon series in the books of First and Second Samuel. You don't need to know much about uh, these books. I'll, I'll explain a bit in just a second. But they're written in the Old Testament. They're part of the Hebrew Scripture, written thousands of and thousands of years ago, thousands of years before Jesus was born. And today, we're going to look at the rise of the people's king. So up to this point, Israel, God's people, they don't have a king. They have a land. They are a nation, but they do not have a king. And today's story, we're going to see that the people pick a king. And like the rock, they want a king who is tall and strong and good-looking and charismatic and is better than any other human man out there. So today we're going to look at the rise of the people's king, how he becomes king, how he wins victory for his people, and ultimately how he foreshadows the king of kings, the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. You can uh, follow along on screen. We're going to look through a a big chunk of chapter 10 and then uh, chapter 11 through verses 15. You cannot follow along in your sermon insert because you didn't get one of those because it's Thanksgiving week and I worked a little less. So if you're looking for it in your worship folder, it's not there. Sorry about that. But you can follow along along screen as we kind of summarize a bunch of content from a few chapters and we see the rise of the people's king, the first king of Israel, a guy named Saul. So here's the story so far. So this is actual historical events, real people, real things that happened. Uh, Israel, they're in the land that God has given them. They don't have a king though. And so uh, what we're going to see, and it started last week if you were here, the people want 
a king. They want a human king. God's led them through prophets, through supernatural things like clouds in the sky and burning bushes. He's led them by judges who are essentially military captains that have rescued God's people uh, from their idolatry and from warring nations. But now the people of Israel are, are in their nation. They have seen all the other nations have a king and they want one for themselves. They want to look like the other nations. And so that kind of sets up our story here today. Like we have been in through this whole series, we're going to look at this passage, this story, through two lenses. First look at it through just a human lens. What is this story? What exactly happened? Who are the characters? What does this teach us about them and the one true God? And then later, we're going to look at the same story through a divine lens. If this book is also written not just by Samuel and Ezra and other people, but written also by God. If God is sovereign over all, he has even more to tell us than just Samuel thought and Saul thought when they wrote these words down and did these actions. So later we'll get to the divine side. But let's start with the human side. We're going to follow along on the screen. We're going to pick it up in 1 Samuel 10, starting in verse 17. Samuel, the prophet, the current leader of Israel, summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king over us. And brought him out, Saul out. And as he stood among the people, he stood taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man? The Lord has chosen. There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel explained to the people the rights and the duties of kingship, and he wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts had, or God had touched but some scoundrels said, How can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. And so here we see Israel say, We want our own king. All the other nations, they have a shiny object in front of them. They have something we don't have. It looks pretty great. It makes us seem legit. We want a king. And while we know, just from our text and how it's written. We know that it actually is not a good thing for Israel. We can kind of uh, have a little sympathy towards them, right? We, too, uh, maybe would feel like it would be great to have a human leader that we can see, that we can follow, that looks powerful, that looks like a good leader, rather than God. But here, right off the bat, as Israel gathers his people to himself, he starts off by reminding them that he is their king. You want a human king? Well, let me tell you first, Israel, I am your king. I am the one that rescued you out of hundreds of years of oppression and slavery under Pharaoh and Egypt. I am the one that brought you through the Red Sea. I am the one that made you into a people. I am the one that gave you a land. I am the one that made you into a nation. I am the one that defeated your enemies. Many different other nations that tried to kill you and destroy you and annihilate you. I am the one who did that. And then as you were in the land for the past few hundreds of years, I am the one that when you forget about me and worship false gods and run away and abandon me and cheat me, I am the one that has sent uh, judges and prophets into your land to protect you and rescue you to me. I am the one that has constantly been faithful and has rescued you from your old rebellion and foolishness. And God here tells them, you are not rejecting Samuel, who's your current leader, Samuel the prophet. You are rejecting me. And what does God do? He gives them what they want. So maybe you think that wouldn't happen. Maybe you just think God's going to give them a harsh talking to and a prophet is enough, a judge is enough, I am enough. But they want a human king and God warns them, tells them who he is, what he's done, warns them of what will happen, and then gives Israel what they want. He chooses a king 
that they would have chosen. He chooses a king that looks like the king that humans want, right? He is taller than others. He's dramatic. He's going to, in a lot of ways, be a great king. We read, we read in verse 24, the people and says, look at this man. You wanted a king? All right, here's the one that the Lord has given you. There is no one like him among the other people. He is unique. He is the perfect choice through human eyes. And the crowd shout, long live the king. Now notice the big problem here, and Chris hit on this a lot last week, the big problem here is not that Israel wants a king or has a king. In fact, if you read the law, Leviticus 17, I believe, God even says, when you have a king, Israel, this is the type of king you should pick. This is the type of king you should look for. He should be humble. He should not put all of his, uh, he should not try to accumulate money and wealth and horses and armies. He should trust me. So the problem here is not that they want a king. It's a prob- the problem is ultimately that they're rejecting God. They, they take a good thing, a human leader, and they replace a good thing with it. They take a good thing, a gift of a human king, and they use that to replace Yahweh. God Almighty, the one true God. So he gives them what their hearts want so that they can look like the surrounding nations. And they take that good thing and they're making it into a replacement for God. And this is a lot like us. It's a lot like us. Before we get too hard on the Israelite people, this is just human nature, right? Rather than seeing God as our ultimate protector, leader, provider, right? We first look to things like our grades and our reputation. Popular, I'm pretty good at grades. I'm on this particular team. I'm safe. I'm good. I don't need to worry. Or maybe I have a great job or I have good letters behind my name or my peers and colleagues respect me. So I'm safe. I'm good. Or I have a 401k or I have a great uh, retirement plan. I have good insurance. So I'm going to be okay future. So just like Israel, too, very often take good things and replace God with them. We don't see God as uh, our, our ultimate protector and provider, or at least we forget to do very often because we think, well, what protects and provides for me? My, my salary, my boss, my home, my bank account. So a similar way Israel, too, is taking good things and making them God things and neglecting God leader and provider. And now, Saul is no replacement for God. Okay? Made that very clear. Yet, for the rest of this sermon, we're going to see Saul as the people's king and actually as a pretty great king. Today's sermon's entitled, The Rise of the People's King, not the fall. We'll see the fall. But right now, we're going to see the rise. Right now, Saul is the solution to the problem in the story. He's the greatest, strongest, most powerful in all of Israel. He's appointed by God to lead God's people out of oppression and suffering and into flourishing. So to understand where the rest of our sermon is going today, we need to see Saul is the hero. And he is a king given by God to Israel. Of course, imperfect, but see him as the hero. Now, you probably noticed this too, but our passage ends with a great cliffhanger, right? The people, I need a king. God shows up. Here's a king. He looks great. He's like the rock. Everyone loves him, right? Look at how our passage ends. But some scoundrels, I love how NIV calls them scoundrels. What a great word. But some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? And they despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. So let's kind of think about our story today, the rise of the people's king. Let's think about it like a, a trilogy. So as the first story, the first movie's closing, it should be a, a great celebration, right? The climax happened. They have a king. No one else is like him in uh, all of Israel. He, he, the people get what they want, yet as the credits are about to close, we kind of, the, the camera kind of zooms to the side. Celebrations happening over here. Zooms to the side. Zooms in on these scoundrels who are saying, how's he going to save us? How's he going to save us? 
And these guys despise him and give him no gifts. And Saul sees that but keeps silent. So the story moves forward. The credit rolls and we're like, well, what's going to happen? Is Saul really going to be able to save Israel? Are these people going to create a coup? What's going to go on? Why is Saul keeping silent? Is he going to lose? Is he going to punish them? What is going on? Will Saul be able to save his people? As the credits kind of roll with part one or movie one, let's head into the sequel and see what happens. Picking up in verse 11, we meet some new characters. Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Gabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we'll be subject to you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, replied, I will make a treaty with you only on one condition, that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you, and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, remember that's where Saul's at, uh, and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind oxen, and he asked, What is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of pieces and cup, cut them into pieces and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out to Saul must have at Bezek. The men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah, 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, Say to the men of Jabesh, By the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we will surrender to you, and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day, they separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into camp, the camp of the Ammonites, and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered, that no two of them were left together. Great story of the sequel, the great story of the second movie, the second act, is King Saul does save his people. It starts off by having a horrible, horrible villain. Right? An evil king, the neighboring king to the north, is not just attacking, but he's brutal and he's evil. And he's uh, hurting Israelites and he's gouging out their eyes to not just them, but to even dishonor them. them. And there's this uh, weeping throughout Israel as they hear about what is going on. But this king is arrogant and foolish. He gives the, the people of the city a whole week to go find some help which I think is kind of foolish, by this king. Send out word, this is what's going to happen. We're going to be besieged. We have no hope. Help us out. And Saul hears about this. The newly crowned king hears about this, and it says the Holy Spirit came upon him. And it's kind of strange. You wouldn't think the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You then are filled with anger, right? Maybe you've read the New Testament. Maybe part of your Christian experience has been the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you worship God, you love others. Here we see the Holy Spirit comes upon this newly anointed king and he burns with anger against this evil, this evil king that is hurting God's people. And so he cuts up his oxen, oxen sends them throughout Israel, says, if you do not follow me into battle against this great evil, this is what's going to happen to your oxen. And hundreds of thousands of Israelites come behind Saul and they rescue this city, and they destroy this great evil completely. So the great second movie, the great sequel is King Saul does save his people. Act 1 ends with, how can this fellow save us? Act 2, second movie, we see Saul uh, victoriously and decisively defeating evil, rescuing people. We see justice is served. We see evil is defeated. We see safety and prosperity is now Israel's future. 
And now all of Israel is united around this one victorious king. What seems like a very happy ending for, for, for many of us as, as Westerners, as people who live in the 21st century, the amount of violence seen both by, for sure by the bad guys, but even by the good guys here, even by the Holy Spirit empowering a king, it leads to, like we, we saw here, slaughter. They broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them into the heat of the day. For, for some of us, maybe not all of us, but for some of us, or even many of us, that type of violence is just, it's just really hard to receive, or it's just, it, it, it's hard to move on to other good news because we're just wrestling with, well, how does justice work? How does punishment against evil work? What, what, what's God doing here? Is this a good example, what Saul is doing? Is this a bad example? How do we understand this? Now, we've actually, we've only been in this uh, book for two months. I think this is the fourth time now we've kind of addressed this. Like, what do we do with such, with such great violence or evil that just shows up in these stories? Now, like we said, First and Second Samuel were writ written thousands of years ago in a very true, real, historic uh, way. This is what happened and how people uh, lived. And so, like I said, we've done this four today's the fourth time these other three times as well, we've kind of tried to understand what's going on here, looking at it through different theological, historical uh, angles to help us fully see what's going on, help us to understand some historical context, how people throughout history would have read this, how the, the people involved in this story would have seen it. And so let me try to do this one more time because it's such a big deal in this story. And as I talked to many people after first service, they too are saying, yeah, I just wrestle with such great and how the good guys can slaughter the bad guys. It's just hard for me to just figure out, understand, and receive. So a few things on this before we move forward. First is that we, we just live right now in a very peaceful, secure, and prosperous culture. Hardly anyone in this room, uh, maybe no one in this room can remember a time where there was a draft, where there was a threat of our country being in, in a war, where there was death and evil and and. Uh, horrible suffering just outside. We just could not ignore just the suffering and evil and violence in our world. And so we just don't live in that world. A lot of us in the West don't. Uh, most of us here it, living in the, in the Twin Cities, that's just not our reality. So it's just really hard to read a story like this and really feel and understand what's going on. We just kind of re read it through rose-colored glasses and say, well, well, why couldn't God just like put up, you know, a force field around Israel and keep the bad guys out? Why, why does uh, this uh, Nabesh and the Ammonites, why do they need to be slaughtered? Why something else done? So that's our just context, which makes many of us just have a hard time understanding slaughter and violence and war and punishment in the Old Testament. Miroslav Volf, uh, here's a picture of him here. He's a Croatian theo the theologian and author. Uh, who lived through Croatian civil war. His personal story uh, was one of just great, great suffering. And so he writes theology and writes to Western Americans to help them just understand, better understand, uh, what much of human history throughout nearly the holy, whole world uh, has believed, is that there is great evil out there and great evil must be stopped. And... Um, like I said, here, us in the West, prosperity and security, it can be hard for us to see, see this. But Wolf, who lived through great evil and civil war, I'm paraphrasing what he said, is this, in a world where suffering always wins and where there's no hope of earthly justice or punishment of evil, the truth that God is a just judge and will punish evil, that truth is good. And it gives hope to the oppressed. So he argues from experience, he says, hey, if your parents are brutally murdered in front of you by soldiers who will never receive punishment for the torture and murder of your parents, if that's your reality, the truth that God is a just judge and they will be punished, that's good news. If you've seen your siblings raped brutally in front of you and you know that the police and the soldiers that did this they're corrupt. They will never see justice. 
your sister who's a victim will never see justice in this world. If that's your reality, knowing that God is a just judge that won't take bribes, that is not impartial, that will punish the horrible, horrible evil and injustice that you and your family and countrymen have received, that's good news to the oppressed. That's good news to the victim. Now, it still might be hard for them to see even more violence or this type of uh, slaughtering of evil. Yet Wolf writes, for much of humanity, throughout most of human history, this is God being a God of justice and wrath and punishing evil. That's good news. And in fact, he argues most of the global East sees this as good news. It makes perfect sense to them. God being just and, and punishing evil makes complete sense. It's actually God's grace and mercy that's culturally uh, really hard for them to receive, where it's kind of flipped here for us in the global West. So this just helps you, you know, gives you one more thing to kind of help understand our passage here today. What, what, one more thing I want to hit on too is that we all, if, if we're honest with ourselves, we all kind of realize that there is a level of evil where we think that evil deserves death. That there's uh, such evil acts that that person deserves capital punishment or death is the right punishment for how much evil or, or murder that that person has committed. And maybe for you, it, that level's really, really high. Only death is reserved for a Hitler or a Mao or a Lenin or something like that. But, but nearly all of us, when we're honest with ourselves, we do think that person deserves to die for the horrible evil that they have done. And 1 Samuel helps us to see that these guys were really bad guys, right? The Ammonites and, and Nabesh, they're not just like hippies that are kind of just chilling and Saul just wants to get more land, so he murders them. But rather, we see that this Nabesh guy is unbelievably cruel and demonic and evil. So as he's sacking this city, this Israelite city, and they have no hope, and they said, hey, let's make a treaty. You can be our king. Make a treaty so that we survive. This phrase, to make a treaty, that's translated, make a treaty, literally means to cut a treaty. Because what happened in the ancient world often, when you would make a treaty or a covenant, you would sacrifice an animal. And the, the, the symbolism was, if I break my side of the treaty, I'd be like this bleeding, cut up animal. This dove or this oxen or something like that. The ESV Study Bible helps us pick up on that. They say to make a treaty literally means to cut a treaty, which usually involved sacrificing animals. But Nahash demands to cut the treaty with the men's eyes. He says, you guys want to cut a treaty with me? You don't want us to kill you? You, wanna, you want me to be your king and for us to let you survive? Okay, we'll cut a treaty, but we're not cutting a bull. We're going to cut every single one of your right eyes out. That's who this king is. And he says it, we saw in our passage, to just bring disgrace upon them, to bring humiliation to the And actually, if we read the Dead Sea Scrolls, it gives us uh, actually even more historical context of what's going on. This name, king of the Ammonites, he actually has been uh, oppressing and killing two of the northern tribes, I believe uh, Gad and Rubian, Gad and Reuben, uh, have already been just brutally attacked by this same king. And in fact, uh, he's already been gouging out these two tribes' eyes. And the people that have survived are the people that have escaped to this city, this walled city that we read about in our passage. So when he comes to sack this city, these are already just the, the few thousand survivors of these two tribes that have already been brutally uh, tortured and mutilated by this evil king. And so this is our... Reality, as we try to think through what's going on with punishment, with war, with death here in our passage, we need all these pieces to be put together to begin to fully understand what's going on. Now, that maybe doesn't fully put your heart or your mind at ease as you're just thinking about violence in the Bible and what divine justice looks like, but we're going to move on to the divine side in just a bit, and that part will help us even more. That will be the best part that gives us comfort to our own hearts. So let's kind of move on from this part. Look at chapter 3, or the end of our trilogy here, to see how the rise of the people's king ends, and then we'll get to the divine side that will make this all good news for you and me. All right, let's continue our story. 
the third act, the third story. After Saul rescues his people, starting in verse 12, the people then said to Samuel, Hey, who is it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. So remember those guys, the scoundrels that earlier said, How is this fellow going to save us? We're not going to give him any gifts. And Saul saw that, and he heard that, and he was Saul. Saul has came and victoriously, completely destroyed Israel's enemies. The people say, hey, remember those traitors? Remember those guys who are not on our king's side, who didn't trust our king? Where are they? Bring them out to us, Samuel, so that we may put them to death. And look at this great turn of events. But Saul said, but the new king said, no one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and, re- and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites had a great celebration. And so we see kind of the culmination of this huge problem, right? The outward enemy is defeated. Now here we see unity among the whole nation. There's no longer dissenters. All of Israel goes out to fully make Saul their king. And in this, we notice that these dissenters get called out. These dissenters, these traitors get Again, we might think, yikes, capital punishment? Really, man, everyone's just bloodthirsty. They want to kill these guys. But whether you like that or not, the reality is that uh, being a traitor against the crown, rebelling against your nation, is actually capital punishment. It's always been. Like whether it's ancient nations, current, if you're a traitor against your country, the punishment is death. Yet. In a great turn of events, the brand new king, the people's king, breaks the law. This new king that just bring victory to Israel. He says, no, the law is not going to win today. Punishment is not going to win today. Rather, grace is going to win. But Saul said, no one will be to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. The new people's king says, Yes, I'm your new king. Everyone's rallying behind me. But remember, who actually won the battle? Saul didn't win the battle. The Lord won the battle. And because the Lord won the battle, because we are the Lord's people, the law is going to be stopped. It's going to be shut down. Justice is not going to happen here. Rather, mercy is going to win. Grace is going to win over for these traitors. Undeserved life is granted by the king to those who used to be his enemy. Not only is that what Saul is doing, that sounds a lot like someone else, right? Which now leads us to the divine side. Whispers of Jesus in our passage here today are going to become much more clear. Let's see Jesus in these passages. Let's see Jesus in Saul. We could just stop here, right? We just spent... A bunch of time understanding the passage, interpreting it, knowing who the characters were, what they did, of that, seeing who God is. Yet, of this story is not just what we've been speaking about. The main point of this story is Jesus Christ Himself and His gospel. As Tim Keller puts it, if all we have is just faithful unpacking of an Old Testament context, it's what he calls a synagogue sermon. It, it's something that could just be read in the synagogue and people who don't believe in Jesus as Messiah could just say, that's good and that's true, that's right. But we're not Jewish people. We're not in a synagogue. We're Christians. And we live on this side of Jesus' life, his death, and his victorious resurrection as king and his ascension. So we as Christians, we read these stories through the light of Jesus Christ, the light of the gospel. And we see in this passage, we see foreshadows of a new king. We see whispers that will someday turn into a huge orchestra of Jesus Christ 
as king and Messiah and rescuer. Not only do we see Jesus fulfilling stuff in 1 Samuel, but rather this is not just a single solitary historical story with meaning that, that only Saul and Samuel in the first context can have, but rather it's a story about Jesus. In fact, the problem is, if, if, if all we do is just say, well, this story can only mean what Samuel meant it to mean when he wrote it down. Or Ezra, who is maybe the scribe that wrote this down. What's happening can only mean what Saul understood it to mean. The, the problem with that, only sticking here, only letting this be a synagogue sermon and not getting to Jesus Christ and seeing him as the fulfillment of the kingship and what God is doing here. The problem is if we don't see Christ, then we just read this story and we have to ask all these questions. We're, we're confused. We ask questions like, well, should we have a king instead of a president? Kind of seems like a king was good. Or, or should we not even want a ruler at all? Should we just have God as our ruler and not look to any other ruler? We, we ask questions about, well, how should we pick our leader? Should, should the person stand out? Or was that a bad thing that they stood out? Or we see the Holy Spirit come upon a person here in this story. So is that the norm when the Holy Spirit comes upon us? Should we be moved to anger? Right away? Is that normal? Should we threaten our countrymen with violence if they don't follow us into battle? Should we fight against our enemies? Or is that a bad example? Should we make pacts with those who are us? Uh, or should we fight to the death? Should we forgive traitors? Should we punish traitors? So if we never get to Christ, those are the, the right and understandable questions to ask. But the answers are not all clear, nor are they the main part of First Samuel. In our story here today. But rather for us as Christians. Who now live on this side of Jesus' life. And death. And victorious resurrection and ascension. We can see these as a part of the story. That's foreshadowing and pointing ahead to. When the king will enter into the world. And defeat ultimate enemies. So now let's look at the passage. Not, not just through a human lens. So if. People and things and events are more than just historical because our God is a God who's sovereign over all. What happened in this story historically is not just random. It's not just chance. But we have a God somehow in his sovereignty and providence is behind what happened. And not just that, he's also the author of this story. Right? Christians believe that God co-authored the whole Bible. It's not just written by Samuel and Ezra and Moses and others, but God is the... Uh, author behind it as well. All scripture is inspired by God. So if those two things are true, then that means things like the prophecies, the characters, and the events in Samuel can have even greater meaning and greater spiritual meaning than what we just see happening on the surface. So now let's do that. Let's kind of peel back the surface or, or jump ahead in our Bibles to see when is a new king coming? A better king coming? Where is there greater victory, greater news, greater defeat of death later on in the Bible? And, and good news, that's not just good news for a group of a few thousand people in the, in the Middle East, but good news for you. Good news for me. Good news for all of humanity, not just one ethnic or people group. Jesus is, and I've been hinting at this the whole time, Jesus is the true and better king. Jesus is the true and better chosen one, or the true and better anointed one. Like we said, there are some issues where we've already seen Saul be imperfect, but more or less in his rise in these few chapters, we do see Saul as a pretty great king doing some pretty great things. We said he's the hero of this particular Story. So here in the passage, we should see everything Saul is doing that is good as being a type or a picture of Christ, the ultimate king who will come one day. So Jesus is fulfillment and the, the ultimate version of the kingship that God here establishes and that begins with Saul. We read in verse 24, Samuel saying to all, speaking of Saul, do you see this man that the Lord has chosen? There was no one like him among all the people, which foreshadowed an even greater chosen king. An even greater king that God would choose 
not just for his people, but for all of the people. An even greater king that here, Saul is, Saul is unlike any other Israelite. He's the greatest of all the human God's going to choose a new king that is greater than all of humanity, that is unique and better than. Whereas humanity rejected God as their king and chose a human king, God chose to send his divine son as king, to be the forever king of all people. And he is both man and God. So as Israel rejected divine king for human king, God's plan, he sends both human and divine. Fulfillment of this. God sends his son as king. He's perfect and holy and just and sinless and victorious and all-powerful, ruling and reigning unlike anyone among the people, anyone among humanity, anyone among any king. And even more so, Jesus is, not, is the true and better chosen one. Chosen by God. And the true and better anointed one. Saul was anointed with oil by a prophet. Maybe you remember that from his story or from, uh, I believe it was in last week's passage. Saul was anointed by a prophet by oil. His head. Whereas Jesus was anointed not just by oil but he was anointed by the Holy Spirit of God as he began his ministry. And as being anointed as king by the Holy Spirit of God, in the ancient world, the, the, the um, term son of God meant king. So kings were a, a picture, an embodiment of the gods. And so the term son of God meant kingly and divine. So at Jesus' baptism, as the heavenly Father splits the heavenly skies, pours out the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus, as King, he declares that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God the Father's Son in whom he is well pleased. And this is how Jesus begins his kingly, earthly ministry. And not only that, do you remember what happened when Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit? So he was anointed by oil to become king. And then part of his actions as king was the Holy Spirit of God came upon him. Do you remember what happened? He was filled with anger. It's kind of weird, right? Again, we said that was kind of strange. Yet Jesus is the fulfillment of this also. Jesus is the ultimate one sent by God, chosen by God, to be filled with the Spirit of God and to burn with anger, but not against a human or human evil or a human but with spirit-filled anger against death and against evil and against sin. When Saul heard upon him and he burned with anger, and what he did is he took a person and ripped them heads. But like Saul, another king would come, an even greater king would come, who also would the Holy Spirit of God, and thus would burn with anger and evil and injustice and torture and death. Yet Jesus' righteous, spirit-filled anger burned against, not against humanity and our own evil, ultimately, or even against an abusive, torturous army, but his spirit-filled anger burned against an even greater and a more eternal enemy. His anger was against death was against Satan, and was against the sin that leads to death. And Jesus himself, filled with the Spirit, didn't just cut up a bunch of oxen. Rather, his own body was torn apart. And his own blood was a sign of the solution. Whereas Saul ripped up these oxen and these bloody chunks of flesh were sent all over Israel to say, if you don't follow me, this is what's going to happen to you. Whereas Jesus, filled with the Spirit, burning with anger, his own body was ripped. His own flesh was torn apart. His own blood was spilled. But not to say, follow Jesus or else you will be tortured like this. But rather, Jesus said, look at my own body. 
torn for you. Look at my own blood spilled for you. And receive that. Come towards me. This is not of a sign of the punishment that you will receive, but rather I will take that punishment on myself. I will receive that punishment on the cross. So Jesus' bloody flesh is both the means by which we're forgiven as well as the means by which evil will be defeated. And again, we heard these scoundrels. Let's go back to these scoundrels one more time. They looked at Saul and they said, how can this fellow save us? Which is a great question, actually. How can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. Mocked and despised Jesus, another king would come who would also be mocked and despised on his way to actually save them. On the cross, this reminds us of, reminding me of Matthew 27, 42 where people are mocking Jesus on the cross as he is shedding his blood, as his body is torn, as he's saving his enemies, others mocked him. He saved others, the crowds mocked him. But he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. They've acknowledged that he's the king, right? But they despise him and they say, well, let him come down now from the cross and then we will believe in him. And like King Saul, King Jesus too was silent before his accusers and his enemies. In Isaiah 53, quoting about Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed king, describes even though he was afflicted and suffered and oppressed, he didn't open his mouth. Just like a sheep, as it's before it shears, is silent, doesn't even open his mouth, so will the Messiah. Just like Saul was silent before his accusers, Jesus was as well, while he was mocked. Yet unlike the great king Saul, it was in Jesus' defeat that he won his people's victory and brought justice to the, to the oppressed. It was through his body being torn apart, his blood being shed, his mouth shut, and the scoundrels and religious leaders alike despising him that King Jesus rescued his people, and stopped evil and death. Jesus is the ultimate death stopper and the ultimate rescuer. And this is for all, not just the Israelite people, not just the Jewish people, but for all. For all of the world, for all humanity, for all those who will make Jesus their king, who will take off their own crowns and make Jesus their king through faith, him. Here's the good news for us today. While it might be hard to hear about a godly king, whatever that means, filled with the Spirit of God, slaughtering an evil king and rescuing God's people, here's the good news for you and I today. Jesus, the King of Kings, slaughtered death for you. Death is not just as a band-aid put on it. Are you, know, you going to experience death? He doesn't just give you a band-aid. He just doesn't give you a few more decades of life. He doesn't just kind of give you some Tylenol to help you feel a little bit better or some weed to smoke so you can kind of just feel good until death fully takes us over. But Jesus slaughters death. That's why the word slaughter is back here in 1 Samuel, ultimately. It's not just what actually happened. But it's good news for you and I because Jesus didn't just kind of defeat death. He just didn't kind of beat death back a little bit. But Jesus slaughtered our greatest enemy of death. Many of us just had Thanksgiving meals where there was loved ones that were no longer with us. And maybe many of us were keenly aware, death sucks. Death is the enemy. Death breaks our heart because loved ones are not with us anymore. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe your body is just showing signs of the effects of death. Disease, cancer, mental health issues are just getting older. You're realizing death's going to win. Death always wins. Death always wins. Even if you're young, maybe you're feeling it this week or you're just seeing the effects of death winning. It is in these moments that Jesus not just giving us a good example to live or Jesus not just being our buddy. This is when Jesus slaughtering your greatest enemy is really good news our greatest enemy. Because unless Jesus returns, all of us will eventually die. But Jesus, through his death, through his shed, 
through his mouth being silent, through him being uh, punished, taking our sin on himself, we can receive life. We can receive eternal life. We can receive spiritual life. Jesus rescues us from an even greater evil king, Nahash, an, an even greater evil ruler who doesn't just oppress and torture and cut off body parts, but Jesus rescues us from an evil that oppresses, prisons, and tortures us forever. Jesus defeats not just suffering and pain. Jesus defeats evil itself. Evil itself, death itself, has been by the victorious King Jesus. Word to you and I today. His word to us today. Jesus speaking to us today, taking Saul's words and saying, making them so much better than what Israel heard a few thousand years ago. Jesus says to us today, the even greater king than the people's king, he says to us today, no one will be put to death Death does not have to be your ultimate future, your spiritual future, your physical future, your eternal future. No one will be put to death today, King Jesus says. If he is your king, if you put your trust in him and not in you, if you put your faith in King Jesus and not in King you, there will be no death today. There will be no death in your future. Jesus Christ has rescued not just Israel, but the world. The Father has sent the Son into the world to be the Savior of the world. So believe that. Put your hope in that. Make Jesus your king today for the first time. And if he already is your king, let us then respond in great worship. The great resonating song that is throughout our passage that the people sang, long live the king. But not just the people's king, Saul, but long live King Jesus, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the defeater of our greatest enemies, the lover of our soul, our rescuer, the death stopper, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. What good news, God, that you loved us by, by making this plan, by sending your son into the world as the great king, the greatest king that ever lived, the supernatural, divine King Jesus. We thank you that you slaughtered death, you slaughtered evil. For those of who us believe, we don't have to be afraid as if death will still have power over us or that death will ultimately sting or win. But our enemies have been won. We can just sit on the sideline and watch our king win. And we can cry in thankfulness, long live the king who brings us life and hope. We praise you, Jesus. Give us faith to believe this. Give us trust in you to make you the full king of our lives. And as we are tempted to pull that crown off of you and put it back on, our, on ourselves, Spirit, change our hearts and minds and give us the power to do that all the more. We thank you for the victory we receive in Christ. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.